Take your Bible and turn with me to math, or Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10 is where we're going to be uh, this morning. And uh, we're going to read from Matthew 9 in just a moment. But just find your place there in Luke chapter 10. We're in a series these weeks talking about how we can and how we should as Christians as members of this church, be a blessing to every home within our neighborhoods, those who live up and down our streets, uh, in our county, in this region of the world, and obviously uh, around the globe. We want to be a blessing to every home because God has been a blessing to us. And we've been looking at the promise there in, in Genesis chapter 12 of how God blessed Abram so that he could be a blessing. And we are looking at how that principle applies to us as well. Living here thousands of years after Abraham, we too are to be a blessing because God has blessed us. And so this morning, we're going to look at this idea of how we can care for every home. You know, when a, when a family is moving into a new neighborhood, when they're looking to buy a new house, many of you, if not all of us, have probably purchased a new house or moved to a new residence at some point, whether it's an apartment or a house. When we do those type of, of things, we're looking at the neighborhood. We want to know not just about the house that we're going to look at or what the apartment's going to be like. We want to know something about the neighborhood. And so we're asking ourselves that question. What is the neighborhood like? Now, when we ask that question, we obviously want to know something about the demographics of that area. I know the, the homes that we've purchased over the years, the moves that we've made, especially since we've had children, my wife and I, we're looking at not just the type of house, but we want to make sure that it's a home in a neighborhood where our kids can have friends, that they can have a connection there. And so as you're driving to look at that new house, you're not just looking at the house in front of you, you're kind of looking at the houses along the street leading to that new residents. We want to know if there's children there. So we're looking at the demographics. But you also want to know not only who lives nearby, but what kind of people live nearby. And that's not just about whether or not they have children. If you are a parent, you want to know, uh, are there good people that live in this neighborhood? Are they trustworthy? Are they friendly? Is this going to be a neighborhood or a community that I will be able to connect with? Or is this neighborhood comprised of bad people? Uh, people that are untrustworthy, people who are unfriendly. And, you know, Are we going to get looked at in a certain way because we act different than the rest of these people? And so you want to make sure that there's a good fit as you are seeking to move to a new neighborhood. And so what's the neighborhood like is the question. But I believe not only is this a good question, I think there's a better question that we should be asking. And that is, is, you're seeking to be in a neighborhood, you're seeking to live as a neighbor among neighbors, you need to be asking yourselves not only what is the neighborhood like, but what kind of neighbor am I? What kind of neighbor am I today, or what kind of neighbor will I be to those in this new uh, community that I'm seeking to, to move to? And so what kind of neighbor am I, I believe, is a better question. Am I neighborly, in other words? I'm of the deep conviction, I'm of the, the belief that the way to improve our neighborhoods, the way to improve our communities, the way to improve our nation is not to look at and say, these people need to change, it's to look inwardly and say, I may need to change. I may need to be a better neighbor to my neighbors. Wow, it's going to be one of those days. <clears throat> <clears throat> wow. 
who sprayed some perfume in here? I don't know what. (coughs) I was fine until about three minutes ago. I love when everybody's watching me drink water (coughs) and talk funny. All right. I think it's loosening up. There we go. So we need to be asking, what kind of neighbor are we? So I need, to, I need to choose. If I'm going to be a neighborly type person, <clears throat> I need to choose to know my neighbors. I need to choose to interact with my neighbors. I need to choose to have conversations. I need to choose to actually know their name, right? If I'm going to be a neighbor and a neighborly type person, i got it to go out of my way <clears throat> to care for and to care about others. I want you to take a look at a video I found this week that really speaks of how we should be, how we should act as a neighbor. Look at this video. We'll take one look at this photo, and it is hard to ignore the religious imagery as a man uses a bottle of water to wash and dry the feet of a complete stranger on the side of the road. Tonight, he's being called a good Samaritan, and for good reason, too. Megan Thompson shows us how he literally lived the lesson taught in the Bible parable. The man was crawling on the ground, using socks on his hands to try and protect himself and his pants just enough for the scorching temperatures. And one volunteer decided he was going to stop right in the middle of the road and give this man a lifeline. David Lee Witherspoon Jr. is a man who wears many hats or shoes more like it. Kind of like Mr. Rogers. <laughs> so I had a lot of shoes that day. He switches out his souls depending on the job, from working at the Phoenix VA to volunteering as president of one of St. Vincent de Paul's food pantries. So last week, while he was leaving this nonprofit near the I-17 and 7th Avenue... I noticed there's a man crawling, so, you know, I stopped my car. I didn't even pull over. I just just saw him right away, so I got out and I asked him. I said, sir, what's wrong? The man told him he had an argument at home, now living on the street and didn't grab any shoes when he left. A lot of people give up on people now, and that's the biggest problem. Instead of giving up, he gave. It was a pair of shoes he used, but knew someone needed it more. I mean, you don't have to, like, empty your wallet or anything like that. Just a simple kind act. Simply giving this man a chance to stand tall again on his own two feet. Reporting in Phoenix, Megan Thompson, ABC 15, Arizona. Did you hear what he said there at the end of that video? Just a simple kind act. You don't need to open your wallet. You don't need to do a lot of things that we may think about when it comes to being a good neighbor. It's just a simple, kind act. This is what neighbor, being neighborly, looks like. This is what it means to care for others. In fact, this is what Jesus did. I, I want to read for you. It's going to be on the screens, but in Matthew chapter 9, we see here the picture of what Jesus' life really looked like every single day. <clears throat> Matthew 9, beginning in verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray and earnest, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. That wasn't on the screen, that last verse, but really, he's, he modeled for us how we should live our lives. And then he said, go and do likewise. 
This is how you're to live. You're to, to look at others and see their needs. You're to, to care for them. Jesus is the model for us to follow. He's the ultimate expression of what it means to be a neighbor, what it means to be kind. He's the good Samaritan. In Luke chapter 10, where I asked you to turn earlier, we find a very familiar story. The story of the Good Samaritan. It's the story where Jesus told this parable about a man who cared for another. See, on this one occasion, to set up this parable that he shared, on one occasion, this uh, Jesus was traveling, he was teaching, he was doing what he normally did, and a lawyer stood up at one of those times where he's talking, and, and Luke here tells us that this lawyer stood up, and he sought to test Jesus. He sought to try to trap Jesus, and so he asked the question, what, sh- what must I do to inherit eternal life? It was a very provocative question. In fact, it's a question that all of us should ask at one point in our life. We should all wrestle with this question. And so here's the man, this lawyer, who asked Jesus this question. Look with me in verse 25. It says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all your strength, with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. Interesting dialogue going on here between Jesus and this lawyer. Luke tips us off, as I just said, that the lawyer here really has no desire to believe on Jesus. He has no desire to to put his faith in, in Jesus. Instead, he's attempting to trip him up. But the lawyer's answer, though, was correct. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you've answered correctly. The things that you said are are right on par. And so how did this lawyer answer this question that was rebutted by Jesus? He answered by referencing the Shema, the, the part there in the law in Deuteronomy chapter 6 where it talks about, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then in verse 5 of that chapter, it goes on to, to, to use three prepositional phrases to speak of who God is and how we should love this God. This love involves the heart, it involves the soul, it involves the strength. And He went a step further, though, and he referenced Leviticus 19.18, where the law commanded God's people not just to love themselves, but to love their neighbor as themselves. And so this lawyer answered correctly. Look at verse 29. But he, that's the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, Who's my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Now, for most Jews, a neighbor was another Jew. Most Jews had no concept of being neighborly or, or to accept a neighbor uh, being someone from outside of Israel. And so they would see a neighbor as another Jew. They definitely wouldn't see a, a neighbor as a Samaritan or a Gentile. It's true to human nature. There was a lot of uh, racism, a lot of segregationism in Israel throughout this history. In fact, the Pharisees and the Essenes did not even include all Jews in in who they called and and qualified as a neighbor. Uh, The debate for who was a neighbor was much up for debate. But it was not up to debate for Jesus and his word. He settles this debate with the parable. Look there in verse 30. Jesus replies to this man's question. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. 
Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. You remember what I just read in Matthew 9 where Jesus had compassion. Now Jesus is telling this story, and he's saying the Samaritan is the one who had compassion. Verse 34, he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these, Jesus asked the lawyer, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And then he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Among the things that we can learn from this story, which is many, but one of the things that we learn is that all of humanity can be divided into what we may call three categories or three options of travel for our lives. And so let me give them to you this morning. First of all, the first option that we can choose as a human being today is that we can be or you can be cruel. If you want to be cruel in your life, you have the privilege to be cruel. Cruel. You have the, obli- or the, 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 the choice to be cruel in your life. Look here in the text, verse 30, we see the cruelty of these robbers. Jesus in this parable talks about how this this man was going down from Jerusalem. Now, when you think about where Jerusalem is geographically, you need to remember Jerusalem sets 2,500 feet above sea level, and everywhere you went in any direction from Jerusalem, you're always going down. And so this man is going down from Jerusalem, headed to Jericho, to the east about 17 miles from Jerusalem. Jericho set 800 feet below sea level, and so there's about 3,300 feet of elevation being traveled as he goes down to Jericho. That 17 miles was comprised of mountains, rugged terrain, rocks, desert, all kinds of difficult travel would have been required to go from Jerusalem to Jericho. And along that journey, along that path, many robbers would often be stationed. And so these robbers attacked this man as he traveled on this particular day. And we see here their cruelty. Jesus says that they robbed him. Jesus tells us that not only did they rob this man, but they stripped him naked. They beat him and left him for dead. And so their attitude toward this man was this. What's yours is mine and I will take it. I don't care about you. I don't care about what your family has or what they may think. I don't care about anything about your life, I just want what you have so I can have it. So their, their, their actions was that they inflicted suffering upon this man. They were cruel. They didn't have to beat him. They didn't have to strip him naked. All they had to do, because they had him outnumbered, was to hold him up, steal his stuff, and leave. But instead, they wanted to inflict suffering. When you think about cruel people. Cruel people are not limited to the times of the Bible. There are cruel people living all throughout our culture today, all throughout this world today. In fact, last week, if, if you've paid attention to the news at all, 
you saw that there was a young man in uh, Baton Rouge down in Louisiana who killed five different people, uh, his own parents, his girlfriend, her dad, and her brother. And then he left Louisiana, drove up here to Warsaw, Virginia, and was arrested last Sunday morning. He confessed to those crimes this past week and I assume will be extradited back. And so the world is full of cruel people. You don't have to be a murderer to be cruel. A bully is cruel. The gossiper is cruel. The slanderer is cruel. The one who frauds someone else or another company is cruel. We don't need any more of it in this world, but it's an option if you want to take it. Second option is this. You can be calloused. Not only can you be cruel, but you can be callous. We see this in verses 31 and 32 as it talks about the priest and the Levite. These two men pass by this man who's lying there in the street, perhaps in the ditch. He's stripped naked. He's beaten to a pulp. The Bible says he's left half dead. And so he was severely injured, lying there probably in a pool of blood. And these two men pass on by. Both of them being religious leaders, both of them being the type of men that if you looked at them, you'd say, surely, if someone's going to stop and help them, the priest and the Levite would be the first to do it. But rather than caring for this man's needs, what did they do? Jesus says they walked around and kept going about their day. You see, their attitude was a little different than the cruel people. Their attitude was, what is mine is mine, and I'm going to keep it. I don't really care about your needs. I don't really care about what's going on in your life. I just care about what's going on in my life, and I don't want to be distracted. I don't want to be out of my comfort zone. I don't want to have to do something that's going to infringe on what I already planned for my day to help you. They're calloused. They're cold. They're indifferent. So their action is that of ignoring the suffering that's around them. Unfortunately, we see too much of this in our culture today. I read an article about a story from long ago, back in the 60s this week. A young lady by the name of Kitty Genovese, a 28-year-old manager of a bar in Queens, New York. About 3.20 in the morning on March 13, 1964, returned, I assume, from work that, that late that night, early that morning, to her residential neighborhood. She parked her car in the parking lot there in her, her apartment building and began to walk the 30 yards from the parking lot to the door. As she was crossing the, the parking lot there, she saw a man over in the corner uh, of the parking lot, and he just kind of stood there. And So she paused, and when he started to toward her, she turned and, and began to walk very briskly, very swiftly the other direction, trying to get to a police call box half a block away. Obviously, this was long before cell phones. So the man caught up with her and stabbed her. She immediately began to scream and call out and, 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 and try to get help, saying, I've been stabbed, screaming for help. But this man, by the name of Winston Mosley, didn't stop. He relentlessly pursued her and killed her. When he was finally ab abducted or, or uh, apprehended, he said in his trial, that while he was stabbing her, he heard some of the tenants of the building yell down at him, but he said he was unconcerned, and he said this. He said, I had a feeling this man would close this, his window and go back to sleep. And sure enough, he did. You see, Mosley had killed before and brutally killed others. When captured for Kitty Genovese's, Genovese's murder, he was sentenced to life in prison 
But there in that trial, they learned that 38 different people witnessed the murder of this young lady. 38 people did nothing. 30 minutes it took to kill this woman, and none of those people came to her rescue. Question has to be asked, why not? Why didn't they do something? Why didn't they at least get on the phone and call the cops? Why didn't they at least, the men, come down and and try to pull this, this murderer off of her? Why didn't they do something? It could be that they were calloused. It could be that they didn't want to get inconvenienced. It could have been that they feared for their own lives. So rather than risk themselves, they would allow this woman to be sacrificed. The reason they didn't help is the same reason the priest and the Levite didn't stop to help the man on the street. It's the same reason why we don't get involved sometimes with the people who are around us who are suffering. It's because we're calloused. It's because we're indifferent. It's because we have become apathetic. We don't want to get involved because of the inconvenience. We don't want to get involved because of the cost or the danger that may come with it. So you can be cruel. You can be callous. There's a third option, though, and I would say it's the best option. It's the option of the Samaritan. It's the option of the Lord Jesus. You can be compassionate. In verses 33 through 35, we see the compassion of this Samaritan that Jesus talks about. He had compassion. The term Samaritan here, as you read it in the Greek, you need to just know that this is in the emphatic position. Jesus is trying to make a statement here. What he's saying is this, the person that you would think was least likely to step in is the one who actually had the compassion. And so Jesus deliberately chose this outsider, this hated one, this one that the typical Jew would have looked at and said, there's no place for him in the kingdom of God. Jesus is setting him up as the hero, as the one who would come in and be compassionate. It's a matter of love. It's a matter of love for God and it's a matter of love for others. And so the Samaritan's attitude was much different. What he was saying is this, what is mine is yours and I'm going to give it. It doesn't matter what it costs me, it doesn't matter what inconvenience it is, it doesn't matter any of those things. What is mine? I live with open hands, it's yours for the taking. So his action was that the compassionate intervene in suffering. Notice his lavish love. Look what it says there. Verse 34, he went to him, he bound up his wounds, he poured oil and wine on them. He took the man, picked him up, put him on his own animal, and then brought him to a place for the night. The Bible says that that this man put him in the inn, and he took care of him throughout that night. The next day, he comes to the innkeeper, and he gives him two denarii, and he says, I've got to go, but this man still needs to heal. And so here's some money. You take care of his needs, whatever it costs. If there's anything that's left over as far as a bill, I will pay for it when I come back. And so I'm not forsaking this man. I'm not walking away from this man, but I've got to go at this point. Here's money to take care of him. I will return. Why? Because he's a man of compassion. It's interesting about this denarii. Obviously, if you studied the Bible, you know that in the New Testament times, that was a a one day's worth of wages. And so what he's doing is he's given this innkeeper two days worth of wages. Well, uh, there's some archaeology that was dug up some years ago, uh, and it showed this um, uh, a price list for what an inn would cost back then with an innkeeper, not just a, a house, but a place actually where you could rent a room and stay there for a while. And it showed that a 
uh, an inn or a room in an inn would cost one thirty-second of a denarii. And so what this man, this Samaritan is doing is this. He gives the innkeeper 64 days worth of payment over two months that this man could be taken care of. Long enough for him to heal, to get back on his feet and become fully recovered from his injuries. It's over the top in his benevolence toward him. So this Samaritan is a picture of what Jesus does in our own lives. And so the good Samaritan is the hero in this story, but who's the Samaritan in the story? It's none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, because that's, how what, that's what he does for us. That's how he looks at us. He looks at us with compassion, and he's over and above, lavish in his love for us. Jesus is the Samaritan who binds up our wounds and takes care of our needs. And then he goes on to tell this man, go and do likewise. You see, once you've been touched by the love of God, you are to go and you are to share that love, that compassion that you've been shown, you're to share it with others. This past, or a couple weeks ago, I think in the Powhatan Today, if you read that, there was an article about it, one of our young men in our county by the name of Jacob Boykin, he's a 16-year-old junior at the high school. And if you read that article, you saw there that this young man who works at Food Line down by Sweet Frog, I believe, or uh, not Sweet Frog, the uh, Sweet Shop, the, the donut place. I don't go there very often. I, I, I go to the other places. KFC, we go there much more than we go to. Thank you for that. We do go to Taco Bell more than we do anything else in that place. But uh, he works at that Food Line. And this young, man, this young woman by the name of Erica came in uh, on a particular day, and she had her two young children with her, and they bought some, some items for lunch, some after-school snacks-type things, and she got up to the counter and was going to pay for them. And, and for whatever reason, I guess her debit card didn't work. And so, obviously, she's kind of distraught. She's upset about this. She's, she's maybe even a little embarrassed, and, and, and she knows that her kids need this food. And, and so... If you've been there, you know the emotional uh, baggage that would have come with that sort of embarrassment. She begins to have the conversation with, uh, I guess, the little girl, that young girl that was uh, checking her out. And this young man by the name of Jacob was in the next aisle. And he comes over and asks what the problem is. And rather than... than, um, doing what maybe some of us would do, and that is, I'm so sorry, we can get you next time. He took his wallet out, he took his money out, and he paid for her groceries. She was overwhelmed by this generosity. She was overwhelmed by this this act of love. And so I want to read a couple excerpts from the article from the Powhatan today, if I can. This young man, when he came over there, or maybe when he was, uh, I guess, interviewed about this later, said this, and I love this statement. He said, everybody deserves to eat and feed their family. To me, it wasn't the right thing to do. I felt like it was something I was obligated to do. When Erica saw this young stranger doing this for her, uh, she started to tear up, the article says. And and, and then he told her it would be okay. And this young boy, 16 years old, gives this woman, a grown woman, a hug of comfort. The lady left the store. She went out to their vehicle, her vehicle, and and started it. The engine was warming. She just began to talk with her children right there. And she said this to her kids. Each morning we say a prayer. One of the things we say is we ask God to help us be a better person and bear his love. And I said to the kids, this is the perfect example of what it means to share God's love or just share love in general and care about other people. 
Boykin, Jacob Boykin, when he was interviewed about this, says that he wishes that it wasn't something that felt so out of the ordinary. You know, people are kind of making a big deal of what happened. And he's like, I don't know why it's such a big deal. I don't know why people are surprised by it. He says he believes that if you don't have the ability to help someone, at least don't hurt them. In this particular instance, he says, I simply had the ability to help this lady. As far as the attention, I'm definitely flattered. I never was expecting this. However, I do believe people are treating this as if it was some extravagant thing that I'd done, when in reality, I think it's something that people should do every day. I think it should be an everyday occurrence. Would you agree with that? We should care for people like that in our lives. And then this last statement. With all the negativity and hatred in this world, why not do the best we can to shine a little light on the darkness of this world? Why not do what we can to shine a little dark, a lot of light on the darkness of this world? That's what it means to be a neighbor. That's what it means. That's what it looks like to care for people. So today, as you think about this neighbor in Luke chapter 10, this neighbor, this young man who works at Food Lion, goes to the high school here in our county. What kind of neighbor are you? I hope you're not the cruel neighbor that we see in the first part of this parable. I hope you're not the one who inflicts suffering on other people. If you are, you need some help. (laughs) You need some serious help. If that's your natural bent, I I would expect this morning that the Spirit of God would so uh, overwhelm you and bring you to a place of brokenness and repentance today that you'd get right with God and get it right with the people you've been cruel toward. But I would guess that the most of us, if we're going to look at this category, and if we're going to really be honest and say, this is probably where I fall into more than I should, it's the area of being calloused, just indifferent, just busy, just apathetic. Are you callous today? Are you distracted? Are you self-absorbed by the things going on in your life? And, and when you think about your neighborhood, as we think about how we can be a blessing to every home, the reason you don't know your neighbors, the reason you don't know what's going on in your neighbors' lives is just because you've never taken the time to get involved in their lives because you're calloused. doesn't mean you're a horrible person. just means you're a distracted person. It means you're a, a, a busy person. It means you, you care more about the things in your life than you do about their life. And so I would encourage you today to, to no longer be a calloused person, but instead be the third. Be a compassionate person. Care for others. Minister to their needs. Be like Jesus. Be like this young man who, who took of his money. And um, guys that are 16 don't usually have a lot of money, right? If you're working at the grocery store, you're not making a whole lot of money hourly. You're probably making minimum wage. So for him to take his wallet out and drop down the $20, $30, whatever it was to pay for this, this lady's uh, bag of groceries there was a big deal. Be a blessing to the people around you. And so how can you care for every home? Let me give you some practical things to do this morning. One of the things you can do to pray or to care for every home is this, to begin with prayer. We talked about this last week, how you can pray for every home. So I want to encourage you to ask God, Lord, how do you want me to bless the people in the places where you've sent me, where I live, where I go to school, where I work, where I play? How do you want me to be a blessing to those people where you've sent me? 
And you need to understand, you need to remind yourself this morning, you don't go anywhere God hasn't sent you unless it's into sin. The only place you go where God does not send you is into a lifestyle or a practice of sin. And so when he sends you to a school, whether it's the high school, the middle school, homeschool, whatever it is, he's sending you there to be a light for the gospel. When you go to your job, whether it's a factory or an office or wherever it is, a school, he's sending you there. When you're in a neighborhood and you buy that house that you love and, and you're a part of that bar, apartment complex, you're not just picking a house or an apartment you like. He's sending you there as a missionary. So begin to pray, God, how do you want to use me to be a blessing to the people and the places where you've sent me? You can't, and I believe you won't begin to care for the people around you until you first begin to pray for them. And so that's why we began last week. Praying for every home leads to caring for every home. So begin with prayer. Secondly, listen. Listen. Go meet the people who live around you. Get to know them. Sit down and talk with them. But listen more than you talk. Hear their struggles, hear their pains, hear the victories in their lives, and and just listen to the people around you. That's where the difficult part really begins to take place. Because you begin to hear the, the, the struggles that people have. When you really begin to hear the pain that's in their life, it's a whole lot easier to kind of just turn the other way and, and begin to be the priest and the Levite who walks around the person with the problems. But listen to them. Begin with prayer. Listen third thing to do is this, eat. One of the easiest ways to listen is to, to eat. We're good Baptists. We like to eat, right? If it's got fried chicken, it's got the glory of God all over it. And so a good practice to have as a neighbor is to take food to the people, the new people who are moving into the area. Uh, if you live in a, in a, in a in a uh, subdivision or an area that has a lot of new people moving in, this is a great practice to have. Even if you live in in an area that doesn't have a lot of uh, transplant-type people, but just create opportunities, create ways to eat and share meals with others. Some of the ways to do that is when you know of a medical emergency in a family, take food there. Take food and just invite them over for dinner. Or, Or if they're going through a life crisis, create ways to eat with people. But don't just check it off your list real quickly, saying, well, I did that. I sent a meal or, or, or do a real convenient thing, and that is to, to call Pizza Hut or Domino's or whatever and have it shipped there, and you never have to darken the door. Don't do that. Go pick, if you're going to do pizza, go buy the pizza, pick it up, and take it to their house so you have some face-to-face interaction with the person. Don't be lazy on your compassion. Well, that's a good statement. Don't be lazy on your compassion. You can tweet that this morning if you like. So when you're thinking about eating, it's not a quick thing. You know, God's called us or created us to be communal. We're created to be in community with others. And many, many times the best way to build community is around a meal. What did Jesus often do with the people in his life? He fellowshiped and talked and discipled and ministered and trained and developed them around a meal. So you have to have a meal with people or share a cup of coffee, if you will, in order to build relationships. The fourth thing is serve. So pray, listen, eat, and serve. 
See, when you begin to listen to people, when you begin to see where they are, you begin to understand the, the, the difficulties and the victories and all the things going on in their life, you have an understanding of how you can serve. Many times you'll look at him and be like, I really want to care for my neighborhood, but I have no idea where to even start because you don't know them. You don't know what's going on in their lives. So as you eat with them, as you listen, as you're praying, the Holy Spirit is leading you now to understand the context of how that service should look, and then you begin to step in and to serve those people. And so that may be uh, <clears throat> this family has had a baby, and, and so they're distracted, they're up all night, whatever, so you're going to take them meals, or you're going to clean their house, or you're going to mow their lawn, or, or a tree's falling down their yard, so you're going to get your chainsaw and get a couple buddies, and we're going to cut this log down because they don't have the time to do this, or they've had a medical emergency. So you're just looking for tangible, simple ways to serve. That's all it is. It's easy. You just got to physically and mentally say, I'm going to go do this. I'm going to take the time out of my schedule. I'm going to take the money out of my budget, whatever it may cost me to do this, but I'm going to go do it. How much does it cost you to cut a tree up that's fallen over someone's driveway when we have some of our storms? Maybe a couple bucks in gas and some bar chain oil, some time. It doesn't cost you a lot, but I'm telling you, if you serve people you will gain inroads into their lives that you would never have otherwise. The last one is this, story. So begin with prayer, listen, eat, serve, and then story. What do I mean by that? When you have prayed for them, when you have developed a relationship where you're hearing them, you're eating, fellowshipping together, you're having this relationship that grows, you're serving them now, there will become an opportunity that portrays itself where you can share with them the story of the gospel. That's what it means. So that's what we're seeking to do here. If we serve them and we bless them and we have a relationship with them, but we stop short of the gospel, we have not been the light in the darkness that God's called us to be. Does that make sense? That's a good place to say amen, because uh, I just need to know that you're awake today. God's not called us to be social blessers. God's called us to be gospel blessers. And anything that we do that stops short of the gospel is not the gospel message. It's not what Jesus would have us to do. And so we want to, to know them and be in a relationship with them and be a blessing to them. But the ultimate way to be a blessing is to take the life of Jesus that's in us and communicate that to them in a way that they can understand and put their faith in Jesus. So at some point, you've got to tell the story of the gospel. You've got to tell your story. Man, I was lost, I was broken, I was undone, my life was a wreck, whatever your story is. But there was a day that Jesus Christ came in and changed me. And I'm not perfect, uh, but I'm not, uh, I'm not where I wish I was, but I'm not where I was in the past. Jesus is moving in my life. He has transformed me, and he can do the same for you. Share your testimony, take the word of God, and share the gospel with them. Tell the story. We need to pray for every home. We need to care for every home. And so next week, next Sunday, we're going to flesh out that story a little bit more. We're going to talk about how we can and how we should be sharing with every home. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that we have a story to share. God, I thank you that you've not just called us to this life of being a Christian, and we just kind of sit here, but Lord, you've given us a task to do. And that task is to take as many people to heaven with us as we possibly can. We're to be your hands and your feet in this world.
And Lord, we thank you for that calling upon our life. We thank you for this responsibility. And God, we pray that we would be fruitful in that. Help us to care for every home. Lord, I pray that there would be a movement among us as a church, as this church, your church, that we wouldn't see people the way we see them now, that there would be something different about the way we view others. God, when we're driving home and in the evenings from work, and it's been a hard day, it's been a long day, we would just take the time to just pray for people, pray for homes as we pass calling them out by name because we've met them, we've been introduced and we're seeking a relationship with them. God, that we would strive to not just leave it there but take it a step further and really invite them over and have dinner and, and really just listen to what's going on in their life. Serve them in ways that perhaps we've never thought of before. God, I pray this morning you'd help us to, to understand that it's, it's not difficult to serve and yet it's very difficult. It's simple, and yet it's hard because our flesh fights against it all the time. So, Lord, as I, I pray that as we pray for others and as we get to know them, that, Lord, you would give us a love for them that would fuel that service and lead to opportunities to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, Father, what Jacob said in that article that type of service should be the norm. God, I pray that it would be the norm because you have so changed and transformed our lives that you are transforming the culture of our county and of this region. God, ultimately, we pray that it would change the face of our nation. But it starts right next door at our homes. So bless us today. Lord, this morning in a crowd this size, uh, there's a good possibility that as we talk about trying to care for others and share the gospel with others. The greatest need in someone's life this morning sitting here is for them to believe the gospel, to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you've been speaking. I pray that you continue to, to lead those folks to, to faith in Jesus this morning. Lord, I pray that you give them an openness to the gospel. When we move into a time of response in just a moment, Lord, I pray that they would respond in faith and in repentance. Lord, those of us who are your children, challenge us. Give us a, a, a deep desire to be a neighbor to the people and to the places you've called us to live and to serve. Holy Spirit, lead this time of, re of response this morning in Jesus' name.